This morning we're going to work together through this passage and a concept, a theological concept that comes from this passage called sanctification. That'll be your $5 theology word for the week. A conversation about what it looks like to remain in the branches of God, to remain on the vine, to live a life that is transformed from what was to what eventually will be. And as I studied and prepared for our conversation today, I was reminded of a story that took place back in the early 60s, a news story that has long since flown away from the media, is probably lost in the archives of the newsreels. But at one time, there was a man named George Wright, and he and his friend robbed a gas station. And when they went into the gas station, of course, the attendant at the gas station was not going to give up freely, so he put up a fight. And George Wright and his accomplice proceeded to then beat this man. And eventually he surrendered a whole $70 of crumpled up bills. It was a lot of work for those two for just $70. And so George Wright's accomplice frustrated, pulled out a gun, and at point-blank range, shot and killed the convenience store, the, the, the gas station attendants. And then the two men proceeded to go have a cheeseburger and play a game of shuffleboard. Wright was eventually arrested for this heinous crime, sentenced to up to 30 years in prison, and living with a perverse sort of comparative self-righteousness, he somehow justified it by saying he wasn't actually the one who pulled the trigger. So he managed to escape from prison and hot-wired the prison warden's car and flee, not wanting to spend the next 30 years behind bars. George Wright went on to stay under the radar for decades. He went to Algeria, to Germany, to France, and finally to Portugal. And on the way of this journey, he changed his address, his clothes, his appearance, his language, his name. And he succeeded in escaping everyone except for God himself. And it was not until 2011 that the law finally caught up with George Wright, then living in Portugal under yet another false name. And Portugal originally denied the U.S. request to extradite him. But the issue was not whether they had arrested the right man. It was whether or not they had arrested the same man. You see, over the 50 years since the crime, George had gotten married. He'd joined a church. He'd been baptized, and he gave his life to Jesus. He raised two healthy children— he was known for cleaning graffiti off the walls in Lisbon and for helping renovate an outreach center for HIV-positive children. He served dinner consistently for homeless people. He planted public gardens. He grew into his senior years without so much as a parking violation. Still a fugitive from the law, you might say this lost man had been found many years before. And when the law finally did caught up to him, he said, I've asked God to forgive me, and I think he has. And of course, human justice still demanded he pay a stiff penalty. But the grace of God, the process of sanctification, which is what we're talking about, had already begun a stunning work in him. 
Friends, we worship a God who makes a story, this true story of transformation, possible. One of my very best friends from seminary has spent over a decade serving as a federal chaplain in some of the most challenging prisons across the country. And his heart aches for the men that he pastors every single week. And many of them clearly made horrific decisions. And he always marvels to me about how God's grace does change men that many of us in culture and society would say are almost beyond help. That there is no one beyond the reach of God and no one who cannot enter into the sanctifying journey of Jesus. We're in week two now of a conversation about the theology that makes these gospel stories possible. If you'll remember last week, Dan unpacked for us the concept of justification, the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the first concept we simply said is most easily defined as getting right with God. Justification is getting right with God. Except the freely given, cannot be earned, love and forgiveness of God. And once we do that, then what? Then what happens? And the story we know does not end there. If it did, Jesus would never have said the words that he gave us to study this morning in John 15. If we sort of just dropped the mic and walked off the stage after we were saved, why do we come here every week then, Right? Why are we consistently together as people in process? You know, justification and sanctification are connected. Sanctification builds on justification. It comes to us from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. So once you get right with God, then what? That changes something in us. It should when I came to faith as a high school student, we were at a Young Life camp in Colorado. And the, the pastor, the preacher for the week unpacked for hundreds of high school students the gospel message, the invitation of justification to just get right with God. And then after that, he said, before you all go home, I want you to commit a verse to memory. And for me, it was the first time I'd ever heard the gospel story. It was the first time I'd ever had a Bible and the first time I ever memorized a verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Sanctification is living into the new life that we receive in Christ. It can be easily defined as overcoming our character flaws. Overcoming what ails us. The process by which we move one step closer, sometimes one millimeter closer, to the life Jesus has called us to every single day. It's the Romans 12.2 concept that says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Be changed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, which is to say, then you will know what God has for you to do. Then you will be able to live as God called you. This is his good and pleasing and perfect will. Dan and I talked also about the fact that this can also be easily summed up as getting over yourself. 
Have you ever said that to somebody, right? Oh, get over yourself, right? I mean, this is, this is what this conversation is about. How do we live in a way that we get over ourselves? That we set our narcissistic tendencies, the desires we have, the agendas we have, how do we set those aside and get about the business of God and live in a way that brings us to God's purposes? And our scripture for today is, is rich with imagery and theology. There is no shortage of detail in this passage. If you want to do some extra homework this week, just go Google this passage. And there is so much to talk about in this passage. But in a nutshell, the imagery Jesus is using here is that of a vine, right? It's the Middle Eastern dry desert climate. It's filled with agrarian communities the imagery of a vine would not be lost on the people in this conversation. And in the community that Jesus is speaking to, there were many Jewish members of the community or formerly Jewish members or currently Jewish members of the community who would also have thought about the vine in all the stories that they received from their forefathers, from Isaac and Jacob and Abraham. And they were once told, even in Psalm 80, that they were the vine. That God was going to do good things through them. And Jesus stands up, and not once but twice, in verses 1 and 5, and he says, I am the vine. You, O Israel, may have thought at one time you were the vine. Or you other listeners here might think that your way or the things you set about to accomplish are the vine, the way to life, the way to truth, the way to holy, sanctified living. But I'm here to tell you, I'm the vine. And this would have been an audacious claim. It would have pricked their ears up a little bit. And then he goes on to simply unpack the process of sanctification. So remain in me. There's only one root, one cause of life in this world. There's one source of joy and holiness and life. And it is me, God, Jesus. And from me comes all that is good. So if you too want to be about the business of bearing fruit for this kingdom, if you want to be living towards me, just remain in me, abide, be engrafted in, be part of the life source that is me. And if you can't do that, you will lose in this life. Apart from me, you will not bear much fruit. With me, you will bear the fruit of God. You know, that apart from me, you will do nothing always bristles me a little bit. Because if I confess, if we look around, we can do quite a bit without God, can we not? We can amass a fortune. We can build an empire. We can earn scholarships. We can set our minds to accomplish and acquire. We can actually do some things without being intimately rooted deep in God. But the reality is what we don't know when we do those things is that the reason we're able to do those things is the way God has gifted us. The life source that makes all those things possible is God. And all of that at the end of life will amount to nothing if we don't know the source from which all the goodness and gifting and creativity and flourishing of humanity comes from. So apart from me, none of that means anything. And if you don't know the source from which that comes from, all of those accomplishments exist for their own purposes instead of for the glory and the goodness in the kingdom of God. 
So do you want to embark on the journey of sanctification, of change, of movement toward God? I'm always a fan of the C.S. Lewis character Eustace Scrub, Chronicles of Narnia, in this epic series by C.S. Lewis in the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We spend a lot of time with a character named Eustace Scrub. He's the cousin of Lucy and Edmund. He's a brat. He's an absolute pain. And when readers first meet him, Lewis marks his memorable introduction with this line. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. A great deal of the voyage of the dawn treader is about the growth and the transformation of this young boy. He's 10 years old when we meet him, and he is rash. He is selfish. He acts on decisions based solely in his own needs and desires. And as the adventure unfolds, he consistently puts himself and his family and his friends at risk because of the poor decisions that he makes. And if you know anything about this series, you know that the lion, Aslan, who brings peace and harmony to these stories, is is a Christ figure. Lewis is a man of faith, and Aslan represents Jesus, and Eustace meets Aslan. And after Eustace meets Aslan, he changes. He becomes different. And Lewis writes, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, from the time he met Aslan, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days where he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. The transformation of this boy because of his interaction with Jesus had begun. His life was now moving in the direction of God instead of all the other possible directions there are. And I don't know about you, but I want this to be true for my life, that the cure has begun, that all of the angst and my narcissistic tendencies and my daily desire to do better with my life than I do, the consistent waking up and realizing I'm a failure and setting about to try again, I just want the cure for my soul to be in place so that I can move toward God. Not because I actually can do it on my own, but because God is drawing me to him. And I then have the opportunity to be a person who is about the things of God instead of my own tragic, self-loathing, self-spiraling story that I can write for myself and my guess is we can all write or are writing for ourselves. N.T. Wright has an aptly titled book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. And in this book, he says, what Paul understands by holiness or sanctification is the learning in the present of the habits we anticipate, with which we anticipate the ultimate future, which is the daily decisions, the daily movements we make toward God because we have the cure. And the ultimate future is the perfection that will happen 
the other side of this world. It will not happen this side of heaven. We will never arrive at perfect sanctification. But what we do is move ourselves toward God and on the process, on the journey. If we believe there is a God in heaven who has justified us, then we have to turn and move our lives toward Jesus to do the things of God in this world instead of our own things. I wish I could tell you this was a piece of cake. What I want to say is go home and do two things and you will be sanctified. (laughs) And then you can go shop or do whatever, right, on your Sunday afternoon. It doesn't work like that. It is a long road. And we will fail and trip and stumble at this. And that is not what matters. What matters is that we keep on. There's an old prayer that uh, went viral before going viral was like a thing. And it goes something like this. It's been passed around. I don't even know who to attribute it to, but it goes like this. Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent, and I'm really glad about that, Lord. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I am going to need a lot more help. The minute our feet hit the floor sometimes, we're already in a mess, are we not? We need to keep moving in the direction of the holy and the divine, even when our failures and shortcomings seem to swallow us whole on some days. There is that saying, right? Three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's three steps forward and three steps back. And we sort of just land right where we were. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Long obedience in the same direction says this. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians simply called holiness. And if it gives you any comfort, the Apostle Paul, Paul struggled with this. Romans 7, 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Every day, I try and I try and I fail and I try again. But the cure has begun. This past August, my daughter and I pulled into our driveway and got out of the car. And there was what looked like almost a chipmunk on our driveway, this furry sort of creature wiggling around on the driveway. I almost rolled over it with the car. My daughter got out and went and saw it and gasped. And she goes, Mommy, it's a caterpillar. I had never seen a caterpillar this size. You could pet it. It was like a dog. You could have taken it home. We we could have taken, I don't know if it needed a food bowl or a dog bowl or whatever. It was the biggest caterpillar I'd ever seen. And it was stuck in the August sun baking on our black driveway, and it was inching ever so slowly. You could tell it was trying to somehow get back to the grass, to the tree, to the garden. And when I looked at this poor thing, it had the the length of the trip from Chicago to L.A. left to make, in my opinion. And so we helped scoot it along. We're meant for the garden, friends. We live in an asphalt, concrete world. And we inch along and we bake in the sun and we struggle. But we are divine creatures that represent the God of the universe. And the long road back to that place 
to the ways of God and the perfection of God is what we are called to be about. So do not dismay. This is a long journey, but it is a journey that we are all expected to take if we say we trust and believe in God. I want to encourage us also not to go this road alone. First, we have God as our guide. We have scripture. We have prayers. We have the great saints that we celebrate on days like this. We have the story of the church throughout the ages. We are invited to participate in that holy community. So let us not give up on reading and praying and studying and knowing that God's word is accessible to us. And let us also find physical partners for the journey, as Eric Camfield often calls them. It's interesting to me, uh, we spend time at our house watching quite a bit of football, and my boys are always interested in Peyton Manning. And Peyton and Eli Manning are two brothers, and they've got Super Bowl rings and all that good stuff. Peyton is arguably one of the finest quarterbacks in the NFL. And it's interesting to read a little bit of their story. Both brothers were coached by the same college coach at two different universities, but they had the same coach, a gentleman named David Cutliffe. Coach Cut, they called him. And these two men, whenever they get in over their heads, whenever they struggle, after Peyton Manning had his surgery, when they have at their fingertips hundreds of of players and dozens of coaches and trainers and all of the resources that the NFL provides. Do you know what they do when they struggle? They drive home and they go knock on Coach Cut's door and he goes out into the backyard with them and reminds them again of how to throw a football. How to throw a football. He walks them through the mechanics of the game and these men both attribute some of their greatest successes to the fact that they have this mentor and this man who takes them back to the basics whenever they get all tangled up in their sport. Who takes you back to your basics? Do you have somebody in your life that does that for you? Are you able to do that for someone else? Jesus says, I'm the vine. Stick with me. Be engrafted into me. Stay on the branch. You know, sometimes the only reason we can stay on the branch is because someone is hanging off and pulling us back onto it. Who does that for you? And if you desperately need that in your life, let us know. We'll help you find someone who can do that for you. I've had these people in my life. They mean the world to me. I call them. One of them was Adele Calhoun, who used to serve here for years. And when I get all tripped up and tangled up in my journey, I call her and I say, help me. Help me figure out what I'm doing. And she basically says, calm down. Let's go back to the basics here. She says the same thing. Find somebody who can do that for your life. Scripture is filled with stories of community, of God's people linking arms with one another, friendships, journeys between Mary and Elizabeth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and his trusted friend, Jonathan. Find a mentor, find a friend. And lastly, focus on this concept of getting over yourself. If we want to grow up in the way of God, if we want to grow up into the branches of God, we have to get over the notion that we know best, 
that we are the life source of our own life, that we know the right way, that our particular version of the story is the right version, is the only version. We have to stop trying to justify our behaviors and start moving toward sanctified behaviors. And we can't own the whole process of sanctification by ourselves because that will just prove to be guilt and anxiety provoking. David Platt says the way to conquer sin is not by working hard to change our deeds, but by trusting Jesus to change our desires. We have to get over the idea that we just have to fix it up and make it all perfect and right. It's not about that. It's not about leaving here going, what do I have to do next? What list do I have to create to accomplish this? It's about getting our desires in line with the desires of the God of the universe, who will then take you on the most marvelous, adventurous journey you could have ever have imagined. And it will not be easy, and it will not be pretty, but it will become a long obedience in the same direction. Years ago, about 10 years ago, when I served in high school ministry here at Christ Church, we were forming new groups of students to take on a variety of different tasks, different ministry opportunities. And we had a group of students who wanted to get together and start to really ramp up the mission work that the student ministry was doing and wanted to work together on reaching out to those nearby, to those around the world who had needs. And so we met over a decade ago, actually, in my office, and a pile of students crammed in and started talking about all of the ways they wanted to reach out to their friends. They wanted to help the hurting. They wanted to hug the lonely. They wanted to feed the hungry. And there wasn't a narcissistic word tossed around in that room. And they, cannot, they, 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 they convinced me of all sorts of plans that they had. This group went on that year to collect enough loose change and dollar bills from their peers to send a $10,000 check to World Vision that was earmarked to help with AIDS and HIV orphans in Zambia. And we sat around with this group. And as many adolescent, you know, communities do, they had to name it, right? They had to come up with a name for their group. They said, what are we going to call ourselves? And they tossed around all these ideas. And finally, one girl said, I know. She goes, let's call it Get Over Ourselves. Let's call our group Get Over Ourselves. They called themselves Go-Yo for short. And this group of students set about the sanctified life together. They couldn't have used that term. They didn't know that term. But this was what... They did. And they saw the world differently because God was in them, moving them toward the riches of the kingdom. We can all do this. If prisoners, piles of adolescents, adults, it doesn't matter who, this is what the sanctified life is. It is a movement toward God and the realities of the kingdom. And it is the journey we are called to if we say we are people of faith. This is the next step, is moving toward that direction. To honor all Saints Day, I wanted to close us with a short prayer from St. Augustine. And I'd like to read his words for you, and then I'll add a few of my own onto the end to send us out well. 
But listen to these words. This saint from history who struggled with the same thing we struggle with today, which is what Paul struggled with, which is what Jesus knew we would struggle with, which is why he preached that sermon over 2,000 years ago to stay engrafted into the vine. Let's pray together and listen to these words. Lord, my soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it. It is in ruins, but I ask you to remake it. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. This I know and do not hide. But who is to rid it of these things? There is no one but you. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here and share this conversation. Lord, for those of us who are committed to you, help us always remember, indeed, God, that the cure has begun and that our lives are about moving toward you. So, God, give us strength for the journey. Give us the partners we need to find our way. Help us, Lord, to get over ourselves and to be about the business of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. And all of the saints and sinners together said, Amen.